You know it's weird? I remember this episode pretty distinctly. It felt kind of like a impacting episode, and it kind of was. And certain elements of it were surprisingly well done. And then certain elements of it were surprisingly bad. All in the same episode. It's just kind of weird seeing that in something like this. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. As ever, I like to go in-depth into as, into the behind-the-scenes as much as I can. Unfortunately, don't have a lot for you today. Um, this was uh, Paul Lynch's last outing with us. He's the director who did The Naked Now. And 11001101, whatever the hell it is, and a couple other episodes as well. He hasn't actually done that much stuff. I only comment on it because, uh, by total coincidence, basically, I have recently looked at episodes that he has directed, both The Naked Now and The Binary One. So, again, by coincidence, I have happened to look at the situation and see his kind of directorial style, and it is present in this episode. It's not bad, but you can kind of tell that the man is better at certain types of directing than others. Let me give you a good example of this. There are scenes where Nana Visitor is portraying grief. Now, she does it really well. She's just sitting there, and she's got this really distant look on on her face. And, and she takes a little while... You know, I, I'm sorry, I'm doing the pauses on purpose, because she takes a little while to respond to people and to acknowledge things, all sorts of stuff like that. And then... You like every now and again you hear the music swell and the camera shifts focus and it's like and 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 I could just hear Lynch in the background. I could just hear him say, "And go grief," you know. And then then he, she just gets the waterworks start and she just starts going ah really loudly and really um well I don't want to call it bad but not good. Uh, and it's just weird seeing that kind of thing from the same actress portraying the same general emotion in the same episode under the same director. You know, it's just, it's, it's kind of some weird stuff. Again, uh, similar to several other episodes he's done, as I just mentioned. Now, the writers of this episode did deliberately reference Day of the Dove. I'm sure any of you who are long-term Star Trek fans remember Day of the Dove and look at that episode and like, yeah, no, that's totally, totally the same thing. Uh, in Day of the Dove, it was, uh, parentheses, asterisk, parentheses, parentheses, who was doing it, and here it's this mega nano, nanoprobe plague thing, but, you know, same general concept. Uh, this one works a little bit better for me, though. Ignoring the fact that it doesn't rely on a being who is basically magic, the entire idea of, okay, you two refuse to be at peace. Drop. Here, we've made sure you can fight each other forever. Have fun! You know what's funny is in a lot of cases like this, one of the first things I'd point out as a world builder is the aspects of the setting that don't actually make sense. You know, where's the running water, right? Where's the food they're eating? You know, where's the farmhood? Where do they have resources to make these things? Well, by all accounts, they have what they were dropped with. You know, the clothes on their back and the makeshift weapons they have access to, and that's it. When you die on a daily basis and death from starvation is just kind of another thing, I mean, whatever, right? In other words, what I'm trying to say is I think this place is even more of a hell than they already are portraying it as. 
Now, that goes contradictory to some other concepts that are saying, and it's probable that the script didn't actually mean it like that, but where are they getting their food if they do, in fact, have food? Where are they getting their water if they do, in fact, have water? I mean, they're on a moon. Granted, a moon with an atmosphere, but a moon nonetheless. I don't know. Regardless. Regardless. I'll talk more about the specifics of that later. What I really want to talk about is Opaka. Now, I like her. Uh, what's her? I wrote her name down. Uh, Camila Saviola. I hope I'm saying that right. Probably not. I don't think I've ever seen her in anything else. But I liked her in Emissary, and I liked her here. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, hang on. How often is she in this show? And I looked it up. Four episodes. Twice more, she'll be brought back to basically play a prophet in the future as part of prophecy things. Um, uh, in the episode uh, Collaborator and the episode Ascension, I want to say. And then there's this episode, of course, with the episode where she basically leaves the show. And then there's Emissary. And that's it. That's such a weird thought to think of it. Given that this is a show where Nog becomes a main recurring character... The fact that Kai Opaka, who, from a setting standpoint, is one of the most critically important people for the Bajorans as, as a people, is going to permanently leave the show in every way that matters, is just kind of... Huh. Now, I'll talk more about that in a minute. I just, I just wanted to bring that up, because that's just weird. Uh, I also want to talk about Jonathan Banks as Golan. Now, uh, Banks is someone I've only seen a few times, but he usually does some good stuff. And I thought he nailed the grizzled, broken-down, resigned warrior thing pretty well. He was way more reasonable than most fiction tends to portray people in his position. I mean that sincerely. You know, how many times, even in Star Trek, how many times has it been where the Starfleet crew come across, you know, a desperate, violent situation, and they immediately say, Oh, death to those people, death to those people. And it takes all this time and effort to convince them not to. I mean, Voyager even did that, for God's sakes, with... Uh, uh, Friendship One is the name of the episode in Season 7, one of the last Season 7 episodes. Uh, you know, so to see him be so relatively, you know, okay, yeah, sure. And you're a doctor, yeah, okay, whatever. And yeah, we'll go ahead and protect you. I'll go ahead and offer my protection, whatever, you know. He's, he's surprisingly reasonable for how fiction usually portrays this kind of character. Which is funny, because, again, his performance flip-flops a little bit. Like, he goes from being, yeah, okay, I'll talk about this and all that, to, I would never let any of you live. He goes from, God, you know how horrible and terrible our suffering is, to, we'll finally be able to genocide the other side. I mean, there's no in-between. And while that certainly can be argued to be true, remember, these people are going under regularly under circumstances that are so severe and traumatic that these people are probably clinically insane at this point. So it kind of fits in character, but only if you sit back and think about it. Tonally speaking, the whole thing just kind of makes me go, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm going for that, you know? So, uh, let's talk about a couple of things here. So... They have these files that Ducat left behind, and it is acknowledged that it is Ducat who left these files behind in behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, so I have a question for you. Knowing what we know about Ducat as a character, uh, as he becomes the real Ducat, not the fake one from Waltz and onwards, uh, knowing about Ducat, how much 
do you think that because he has these security files and they're not really that well protected so possibilities is this misinformation in case someone takes the station we do know they prepared for that eventuality if you'll recall uh although actually i think that episode hasn't happened yet but the point being you know that is a thing uh do we know or, you know actually no that there has been that thing with the with the babble or not the babble not the babble virus the uh Oh, I can't remember. Anyways, point being, we know that the Cardassians have prepared for the inevitability of, you know, being killed prior to now. So, that's that's a possibility. Uh, it's also possible that the Cardassian intelligence community, and I don't mean the Obsidian Order, I mean just the intelligence community, is just that stupid, just that incompetent. But I don't like either of those answers. You know the answer I like? I like the idea that Dukat busies himself in his workday with editing some of his reports, especially the ones he sends back home, to basically make himself look good. Not And this is important, because there would be two key reasons for doing this. One, so that the people back home, you know, Central Command, know that he's doing a good job, and two, so he can have that sort of satisfaction of feeling like he did a good job. You know, basically, patting himself on the back, because... I could totally see Dukat doing that. So they talk about uh, Opaka having never really left the planet, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. And then I sort of realized something, and it's something that the show does emphasize a little bit. Oh, excuse me. And kind of helps to inform a few things. And it's something I love so much that I have tried to replicate this same concept within some of my own fictional works. It's the idea of a race or a group or a people who live in a galactic community. Now, what I mean by that is space travel is normal. Faster than light travel is normal. Other alien races who communicate with each other is normal. You know, this is the it, galactic community, right? We know there's Cardassians. We know there's Klingons. We know there's space travel. We know there's teleporters. All that's normal. But we don't really have a lot of that stuff. There are Bajoran ships, of course but they're weak and they're pathetic and there's not that many of them. In other words, Bajor is not a space-faring power even though they exist within a galactic community. It's a balance that you don't see that often. Usually a race that's just barely entering their solar system or just has a few ships isn't really properly aware of the overall community. Or, if they're aware of the community, they have, they're a part of it in, in a regular, everyday kind of a way. Now, obviously, there are Bajorans in Starfleet, and there are Bajorans who go out. But, you know, Bajor as a power, Bajor as an, a political entity and a cultural identity, is basically landlocked. It has been argued, and I actually brought this up before, it's been argued how much is actually considered Bajoran territory. It can be debated, and there are episodes that are going, going to go into this in the future. And it already has brought, been brought up at least twice that Bajor's territory might not even extend out to the to the totality of their own system. So it's just it's just kind of a cool concept and it kind of helps to inform the the world building that is continuing to go on with Bajor and will continue to go on with Bajor as well as to uh, kind of help to e emphasize why despite everything despite their misgivings they're kind of utterly reliant on the federation as of this point in time. But I digress. Um, so, they, they go through the wormhole, and, you know, they, they do all stuff. 
I want to give special praise again to the actress. She does a really good job. She does this unstated thing very often. And she does it with really good facial, like, just... She's pretty good at communicating without saying anything. And she does that several times. And it comes across very well. I, I admit, I gave a big grin when she's looking out in the wormhole and, and someone points out, oh, it's funny you picked that. That happens to be the wormhole that, or excuse me, that happens to be the, the you know, the window that'll be facing the wormhole. And then Cisco says, unfortunately, you know, no ships are scheduled for today. And she looks up at him, ah, oh, it's so unfortunate. And it takes a second, but then he's like, okay, come on, let's go. It takes her through the whirlpool. I, I just really like that. Obviously, this is whole part of her prophecy thing, fulfilling her destiny, blah, blah, blah. But even if it wasn't, I like that. It's it's the same thing I'd do. I, I mean, to be blunt, because I can totally understand that mindset from her perspective. I'm landlocked. I've never left this planet. Not that you know about. And so, if I was given that first chance to go, you know, to space, to, to go through a wormhole, to go... Uh, you know, through a black hole or into another dimension or whatever, you know, my first thought would be, oh, eh. oh we can't because there's nobody going today? Okay. You know, you know I, I could totally get that, so I'd love to, to give that moment. And she, she perfectly encapsulates it. Probably the first and arguably the only time she loses her cool in the entire episode is right after they finish going through the wormhole. And she's just like, ha, oh, that was awesome! And I love just that, that natural, infectious enthusiasm she has. It helps, it helps us, the viewers, too, in addition to just enjoying it, because the wormhole's kind of normal to us. I mean, we've only seen it a few times, but it is kind of normal. Spaceships are pretty damn normal to us. This is Star Trek, you know? Star Trek started on a spaceship all the way back, all the way back in the cage, you know, we're kind of used to that. So seeing someone who manages to do a good presentation and acting of what it would be like to experience that for the first time kind of helps to recreate just a little spark of that magic to remind us of how awesome it, it would be if we were actually able to go up there and be like, well, you know, just little bits like that help. <clears throat> so, uh, there's a lot of tidbits here and there about her clearly being up to something. It, pretty much the moment that she, that she gives the, the bauble to, uh, to O'Brien. I'd say that's the real definitive moment. Earlier, earlier of course, ben, uh, Bashir excuse me, is like, I think she's up to something. Or, I think she's got something on her mind. You know, just in case any, any audience members aren't paying attention, treating us like we're idiots. But there's a lot of more subtle things where she, she you know, clearly demonstrates she's up to something. This is something that she was expecting. This is something that she walked into. Now, that's important to establish because it helps to inform the scene when they're crashing. As they're crashing, the camera occasionally cuts to her. It only does it like twice, I think, maybe three times. It's a good crash scene overall. Star Trek and crash scenes are, again, kind of old hat. But the cuts to her kind of help because... She looks a particular brand of terrifying. Not in the normal way. I mean, obviously, you know, again, you, real-life person, whoever you are, if you were suddenly put in a ship, you'd probably be like, yeah, yeah, but now you're crashing. Now you're crashing on an unknown moon. That would probably be pretty damn terrifying. But that's not what I mean. Because remember, Opaka's up to something. She walked into this. It is one thing to face a doom or a terror or a tragedy or 
a disaster without knowing it's coming. It is a completely separate and wholly worse feeling to know it's coming and to walk willingly into it. And credit where credit is due, the actress, uh, Saviola, she shows that. She's just, it's like she's bracing herself. She knows this is coming. She knew this was coming and she is, oh God, I don't want to do this. Oh God, I don't want to do this. And you just, you just see that in her face. Very well done. Made me feel for her in the moment there. Awesome stuff. Um, uh, I also want to say that her death is interesting given how it's presented, her first death. I say first, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, because the episode, the, the tone and the structure of the episode is actually wonderfully well presented when you think about it. It's kind of like what Skin of Evil could have gone for if they'd planned for it. And we'll talk about Skin of Evil when we get there. But the one and only defense that's ever been leveled for Skin of Evil is, you know, space is dangerous, sometimes people die. You know, not every death has to be significant. But if you're going to do something like that, this episode does a much better job of setting that up. You've got her showing up. You've got her, enthu you know, her... her I can't, I want to see the wormhole, then you've got her enthusiasm, and then you've got, oh, maybe we, and she keeps pushing, she's like, maybe we should check this out, maybe we should check this out, and it's kind of building, you see it coming, you, the audience member, sees this coming, they, they telegraph it, not, not super obvious, but it's just kind of building up, and then there's that face I just mentioned in the crass, and she's like, Ugh. we might not notice that the first time around, I definitely noticed it this time, but you know, Ugh. Then they crash, then they die, and then the senselessness of it really is complete at that moment. Because it didn't just happen and say, oh, we're supposed to accept it's senseless. That's, that's how real life works. This isn't real life. This is fiction. You're still supposed to tell a good story in fiction. You're still supposed to do things like uh, build up and pay off. And so they build up throughout the entire episode up to her death. It's all one continuous upscale in events until finally she dies. And and then Kira overacts for a second. And then you see the guys with the weapons. And just the tonal shift. It feels like a plunge in tone right there. Very good proper pacing in the construction of that. Wonderfully done. Um... You might think it's weird I'm praising this episode so much. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, again, about half the episode is terrible. <laughs> because every now and again there's just something that just doesn't fit with, with the rest of us. I really wonder if this is one of those multi, you know, oh, I want to do this thing, well, I want to do this thing. Ah, writers uh, butting heads in the room kind of a situation. Because it's really strange. Anyways, so I want to bring something up here really quick. They mention how the Bajorans are up in arms about this. Okay, uh, why aren't they helping? Oh, right! I already acknowledged that. Because the Bajorans are not a spacefaring power. I mean, they have ships. They even mention that they might send a ship to the Gamma Quadrant to keep in contact. They never say if they actually do or not. But it's going to be on the Federation to deal with this. And, of course, DS9 is out in the boonies, so you know, getting a proper ship out here is going to take some time. I sometimes wonder if they should have tossed a line in there, like, you know, the, the USS Blackness Block, 
I don't know. Uh, where's, where's my drink? The USS 100% natural seltzer calorie-free is on its way. It'll be here in like a week and a half. Something like that, you know, instead of just... We're sending a runabout in two people. I know we're supposed to be underfunded, but really? Anyways. <laughs> don't worry, they do actually address that in the show later on. It's just... Uh, early DS9 had a bit of a problem with... We need to portray them as, you know underfunded, basically, as, as much as that could exist for the Federation. But I think they went a little bit too far. Remember, this is supposed to be a very important outpost for a political reason, a political reason, a scientific reason, and an exploration reason. All kind of wrapped up into one there. So you'd, you'd think they'd have, like, oh, I don't know, at least one actual starship stationed here every now and again. Anyways. Moving on. Moving on. <clears throat> so, uh... Where am I? Where am I? Gonna... Oh, right, right. But I want to talk about the Bajoran thing. Because this is actually the beginning of Kai Wynn's plot arc, right here. And I know that that's... I'm not going to spoil it. You know, I, I just established the spoiler territories. All I'm going to say is that I want you to picture the Bajoran situation. They have said twice now, uh, in Emissary and here in this episode, that Opaka was the central element that she was the reason that the uh, provisional government was able to exist. That she was one of the key figures in pulling them out of the, of the occupation, of, of enduring the last several years of it, of being able to reach out to the Federation, as Opaka personally did. Opaka is probably personally responsible for Bejor's acceptance of the Federation more than any other singular element. Because we know need wasn't involved. Too many Bajorans have that whole pride and that natural mistrust. And I'm not blaming them for that. It's totally understandable why they feel that way. But the point is, they'd be willing to look past need, past necessity, past we, we need someone else in order to just say, get the hell off our lawn. This is our, you know, Bajor for Bajorans. And Opaka kind of helped push back against that. And now she's gone. Now we have the worst kind of power vacuum. Because Opaka wasn't a dictator, which is already a bad power vacuum. She wasn't a king or a queen or an emperor, which is already a bad power vacuum. She was the worst kind of power vacuum. The kind of person that had tremendous influence without direct political power. The kind of person that she could talk to a king and the king would listen. She could give orders to a queen, and the queen would listen. Now, I know they don't actually have that equivalent, but you get what I mean by that. This is someone who, if she said something, Bejor would jump. She was a religious, political, and I guess I want to use the word cultural icon of Bejor. And she's gone. Now what? And I don't want to spoil, but thank God this is DS9, they will actually go into now what? Because that whole continuity matters thing is one of the main precepts that makes DS9 awesome, in my opinion. They will actually touch on this point in the future. So, uh, so uh, they crash. Apocalypse dies. I want to give special praise to Cisco. Again, we've seen this kind of episode, hell, in Star Trek, as I mentioned earlier, but in other works of fiction as well. And what tends to happen, fairly often, actually, especially in Star Trek, is, you are beneath us, Starfleet is better than you, I am superior, Ubermensch, you know, you know the, the, the sort of 
smug self superiority thing, and you know you're we would never go down to your level. We would never fight this war. We're beyond you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, what Cisco does is he, within minutes of of crashing here and interacting with these people, negotiates an actual cooperative trade with these people, medical knowledge and expertise in exchange for protection and resources. Just boom. I almost can't picture, like, Kirk or Picard doing something like that. Maybe Kirk. Maybe. But it's it's just... It, early Picard, definitely not. Later Picard, a lot more debatable. Uh, I definitely couldn't picture Janeway doing this. And I really couldn't picture Archer doing this. It just kind of shows one of Sisko's greatest strengths. And I've actually already talked about this. Sisko is really good at being on the front lines and being adaptable. Something changes, he is really good at that sort of, for lack of a better term, improv leadership. And I think that's awesome, the way they show that in this episode. Um, it also is relevant because he flat out states, we're planning long term. You know, Bashir says, we're only going to be here for like a few hours or whatever. And he's like, no, we don't know how long that rescue ship's coming. So we need to take, we need to be preparing for however long it takes. Automatically assume it will be the worst possible situation and prepare accordingly. Now it's funny because Cisco doing that is right in line with kind of what O'Brien does in this episode. It's interesting because the Federation actually comes across pretty pretty well presented in this episode. Uh, we've got O'Brien, who basically manages to invent something, you know, the whole improvisational engineer, making it up, making it work with whatever I got kind of a thing. We've got Cisco, who is the improvisational leader, trying to figure out how the hell I'm going to make the situation work going forward. And we've got Bashir, who, despite a couple of brief moments where he suddenly reverts back into newbie green mode, is actually a very competent and brilliant doctor. You know, it just, it's, I need to figure this out and this needs to be done and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and of course, he's the one who deduces what's going on with the damn nanos or nanomachines. Although, you know, I'm not actually sure that fiction started using the word nanomachines at this point in history because I noticed that they never referred to them as such, even though they are. The way they describe them is nanomachines. It's just kind of weird, isn't it? Nanomachines, son! Anyways, point being. <clears throat> I also want to give some praise to Opaka's description of the crash. The crash itself wasn't exactly bad, kind of humdrum. But her description of it, I kind of almost wish they hadn't shown the crash. I know, I know, we got to have the, the first act action sequence. I understand how the, the that's scripted. I understand why that's a part of television. I don't agree with it. But her description of it is so much more powerful than anything they showed on screen. You know, I, I, I was watching and... It was getting harder and harder, and, and, and there was this blackness, and I felt the heat rushing through me. Just really good stuff. And she really accurately gets across this feeling in her words, uh, or in her tone, excuse me, of something horrible happened to me, and I don't even understand it. It's a nice touch. I really have to give praise to her actress. <laughs> you know, I wonder what would have happened if it had actually taken an hour to get to the wormhole instead of a minute. Uh, anyways, inside joke. Some of you will get it. So they talk about this eternal war. I have a note here that just says eternal war as punishment. Uh, anybody out there a Mega Man fan? I know that's kind of a segue. Uh, there's a series called Mega Man XZ, 
which varies in quality, but the story is interesting to me. Uh, and it's all basically precipitated by a, an individual who was, d who did some really, really horrible stuff. He's easily the single most evil character in all of Mega Man, and that's saying something. And this individual was given a punishment by being given, like, this super mega advanced suit that kept his body alive pretty much no matter what. Uh, forced him to keep surviving. And that was his punishment. Eternal existence as servant, as, as punishment for what he did. And I find that, I always found that concept to be a little fascinating because if you actually have the technology to pull off something like this, I, I mean, wow, you know? This is really ludicrously advanced in its own way. Um, it, it's actually kind of scary. This is, I mentioned earlier, it's a little bit better than magic, but this is really only one step down from magic, this, this level of tech. The ability to, uh, the way that, they don't describe it in full detail, but the way it's implied, the idea is that these nanomachines are basically infesting your whole body. And at this point, all of your cellular functions that would normally be accomplished aren't. And these nanomachines are basically forcing your cells to function the way they should instead. So in other words, you know, you're now mach more, ma more machine now than man, twisted and evil, right? That's kind of the idea. Now, they never say this, but one of the things that's implied, and I really wish they had actually confirmed this 100%, is that this isn't an eternal thing. That at a certain point of time, with a certain amount of degradation, with a certain amount of wounds or, or, or loss of mass or whatever, it, you would actually start dying. You, it would, it would be, get to the point where they can't keep you going, and there's just too much loss. Um, to use a strange parallel, since we're just talking about other fiction here, uh, in the terrible Wolverine movie, at one point Wolverine is shot through his brain, which removes sections of his brain. Now those sections regrow, but they're lacking the original components, aka his memory, so he loses his memory. Now that doesn't make sense for several reasons, but you kind of get how that could apply here a little bit better, because this isn't just some magic mutant uh, regenerative ability, these are just bots which are trying to emulate cellular function. And, for example, if someone suffered sufficient brain damage, it might be able to make them... I hate to use the word alive. It make th might make them not dead, but I don't think it could truly make them back into the way they were. Which is one of the other re reasons it's interesting that they talk about, uh, you know, how, how we don't fear death anymore. Because I could think of at least three or four ways that you could probably inflict a permanent death under the situation if you really wanted to. Now, the other reason I point that out is because I think that's on purpose. In other words, if they wanted to actually kill the other side, they probably could. I mean, if nothing else, if they managed to win a battle rather than leaving the corpses where they lie, why not bury them in rocks? Why not keep stabbing them? I mean, why not chop their legs off and their arms off? I mean, I hate to sound so macabre, but at a certain point, there are ways to break someone to the point where their regeneration just isn't going to work again. It's one of the reasons why I paralleled uh, Logan over from X-Men, because over the many years Logan has existed as a character, several writers have you know, analyzed how regeneration works and at what point or from what things it's not going to prevent you uh, from. So... In other words, based on the premise, based on the original writing, based on pillars, 
uh, Michael Pillar's thoughts about this episode. I think they're deliberately portraying this as a situation where neither side is actually legitimately thinking about permanently killing the other, right? That the whole point is to hurt them, to kill them, and then to keep going again, because that way we get to kill them again. Now, here's where the episode breaks down, because the episode twice points out that both sides actually want to permanently kill the other side. In fact, one of the cl climactic moments is uh, uh, Golan ask, you know, basically begging for this, this tech to shut down their ability to, to, to revive, to permanently kill the enemy, we will finally have victory, you know. Again, these people are probably clinically insane, but that seems sufficiently inconsistent, and I really feel like, and I don't mean it to be too harsh on this episode, because I did enjoy it, but I really feel like this is one of those concept episodes that wasn't really fleshed out to make it a functional idea. You know, the concept is there and obvious. Eternal War. Boom. Done. You know? The whole point of this is to show how war is a senseless, horrible tragedy, which is a little bit of a... Um, how do I put this? Uh, naive perspective on it, because war is many things, and most of them horrible, but to, to universally say that war is this, you know, this, this tragic, horrible thing, well, it just reeks a little bit too much of early TNG, you know, anti-Vietnam kind of a situation. Um, that being said, I get the concept. I get where they're going with it. They want to show, you know, this war and how it turns people into monsters and blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, I'm with that. I'm with that. Again, Day of the Dove parallel. But why not do a little bit more work to make this a little bit more functional? See, the way it's presented is it's two sides who are fighting on their own planet, Right? And then they're brought here, and then they keep fighting. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Um, well, again, how is this sustainable in a long term? How long has this been sustained? You know, one thing I would do as a writer, I would say this is recent. Like, let's say one year. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a long time. But I want you to really think for a moment. Everything that has happened to you from one year ago till today. Really think about that. All the effects in your life, everything that's changed, new people you've met, people you've lost contact with, new concepts, new ideas. Maybe your living situation has changed. Maybe you're with someone you weren't with before. Maybe you've broken up with something you, you used to be with. Maybe you've got a new car. Maybe you've moved countries. I know someone personally who's done that, you know. There are lots of things that can happen in a year, especially when fighting and death is happening daily. So I would have it written, they never say how long they've been here, although they imply it's a really long time. I would have it be so that these people have only been here, only, I shouldn't say that way, have been here a whole year, roughly a year. And they've just been fighting and killing and fighting and killing that whole time. And so obviously, you know, after a year of patterned activity, you're going to get to the point where you just assume it's the norm. Like, that, that's how sentience tends to work, you know, pattern recognition, right? But then, you know, have, as, as Bashir's looking into this, he's like, this isn't, this isn't long-term sustainable. You know, this isn't something that can keep going. After a certain point, these machines are going to run out of power, or they're going to not be able to spare the damage after a certain point. It would also kind of help to explain why neither side has completely wiped out the other. They could even reference permanent deaths that have happened, and how that's such a rarity for them. You know, oh my god, someone finally was permanently killed, holy crap, you know. Just, in other words, do a little more work to make this a little bit more believable of an idea rather than remaining a high concept.
So forgive me. Um, now, I want to say uh, one other thing here uh, really quick. The one thing the episode does is exactly like every other fiction in Star Trek has done. I kind of mentioned this before. You know, ah, I would never sink to this level. Cisco walks in and basically says, why don't you try truce? Now, <laughs> I gave, again, I, I've given a lot of credit to this episode and a lot of praise, but this is hopelessly naive, okay? Just one person walking into a situation he just found out about today and saying, hey, you know that enemy you've been fighting for so long that your government kicked you off the planet for? Why don't you just make peace with them? Huh? <laughs> Do you really think that will work, Cisco? That all they need is someone to walk up and say, hey, do you think about peace? Remember, they portray Golan as someone who's at least willing to think about this. Except when they actually have the meeting, both Golan and the other guy flat out admit, no, I have no intention of letting you leave. I, I would rather kill all of you than, than escape myself. <laughs> Which brings me to my next point. Why did they even have the meeting at that point? Why did they even care if neither side, including the side with the heroes, I forget which is which, I don't think that point is important, if, if either side was completely unwilling to even entertain the thought, why did they even meet in the first place? Oh my gosh. And you know what? Voyager did it better. I can't believe I'm saying that. It's so rare I get to say that. It's, it's kind of a treat, actually. You know, hey, Voyager did something better than the other show. Voyager has two episodes, which I actually like. Uh, I've gotten some flack for liking these episodes. But those are the episodes Memorial and the episode Hatred. I remember both of them very clearly. Because both of them share a common theme. They present our heroes, our Starfleet personnel, or Maquis, or whatever, as... Uh, Decent people. You know, I mean, all of Star Trek does that, but they portray them as that, and then they immediately thrust them into a unique situation. In hatred, it's drugs and, you know, psychotropic effects and, and complicated uh, manipulation techniques, and in Memorial, it's literally beaming crap into their brains, right? But both cases go out of their way to showcase how severely this is affecting the main character, how Chakotay just isn't dealing with this right, how, how Harry is desperate and afraid at these things that he would never do. In other words, both of those episodes showed very clearly... Memorial does this better than Hatred, so I'm going to focus on Memorial. Memorial showed very clearly and powerfully just how anti-horrible they were. And I know that sounds like a weird thing, but the point is, they didn't understand. And it showed that. You know, the desperation and fear of being in a firefight, of, of shooting down civilians because they, they wouldn't disarm, because you were so terrified, because you were so shell-shocked. The idea of gutting down the enemy because they happened to be there. The kind of mindless killing and, and brutal hatred that would go through it. These violent, terrible acts that they would never do. That was the whole reason it was screwing them up so badly, right? It was because it was so antithetical to them. That lack of understanding is absent here in this episode. We have a situation arguably worse than the one that was being presented in, in Memorial or in Hatred. And yet, Cisco just walks in 
and says, well, why don't you make peace? <laughs> now, obviously, Cisco does not understand, and so praise where that is due. But at the same time, it's nowhere near as well presented. It, it's so vacuous. It's like someone basically saying, well, why don't you just do this? And, and then just expecting people to go with that, right? I, I, I don't know. I just, it didn't, it really just, what? <laughs> um, so this is also our first real Kira episode, uh, believe it or not. We'll get several more in the future. Uh, it's, it's the bit where she, you know, she's talking, I'm not like these people. I'm not like these people. You know, she's like, no, you don't understand. And what's funniest is the first thing, and she reiterates this a few times, the thing that she uses as the distinction between them and her is that she has not accepted death. That her whole existence, her whole life since she was a child, has been the struggle to survive. And, of course, that's Opaka's point. That all Kira knows, really is struggling to survive, that she's still trying to wrap her mind around the concept of living, of having a life. It's the kind of thing that's just sort of alien to her. And, of course, as Opaka points out, she does feel bad about it. What, what, she, she doesn't say this, but she desperately is like, no, I'm not like them. I, I, I had ideals. I had reasons for doing it. I don't want you to think that I'm a bad person just because I was a bad person. She doesn't say it that way, but that is what she's saying. And, of course, Opaka, who's pretty awesome, she gets it immediately. And she's like, no, it's okay. It's okay, child. I got you. You have to accept the past to move past it. That is so true. That is so goddamn true. Doesn't matter how horrible, doesn't matter how traumatic. You gotta be able to look at it in order to be able to walk behind it. In order to just move it through. Let that I like to think of it as ash. Let me use something from my real life. I'm not gonna give you examples. If Lord knows I talk too much about it. I like to think of all the crap that happens to us in our lives as ash that just collects on your shoulders. And you know, the worse the event, or the longer it happens, the more ash is there. Until it gets to the point where it just, it, it just weighs you down. And you just kind of get used to it. You just kind of get used to that ash, that weight, that burden that's just burying you bit by bit as you walk forward. And the only way, the only way to really deal with that is to acknowledge and accept that this crap happened that this is here. You can't brush this ash off your shoulders if you don't first admit that that ash exists. And Kira's been through a lot of crap. So, um, yeah, honestly, I don't actually have much to say else to say about the episode. There's a bunch of other stuff that happens in the episode after this point, but there's only one real thing I want to talk about after this point. Um, and that's how subtly brilliant Opaka is in the ending. Because, think about this for a moment. The idea of Sisko walking in and making a peace treaty just this once, yeah, that's ridiculous. It's actually kind of comical in how silly and stupid it is. But Opaka's not going to do that. 
she's going to try and make peace between these people. And she's going to fail. And then she's going to die. But then she'll come back. And then she'll try to make peace between these people. And then she'll die. And then she'll come back. You get it? By unique circumstance, she has been given the tool necessary to endure as long as she has to. The only thing that will keep her from doing this is her own resolve. And I think she's pretty committed. So however much they hate each other, you know, their hatred and their violence has gotten so bad because they don't have to be afraid of death anymore, she will be able to go just as far, if not further, because she also doesn't have to be afraid of death. It's just kind of a cool little thing. The idea of, of this sort of peace being made under such circumstances. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of an earlier TNG episode. I forget the name of it, forgive me. It's, it's the, uh, it's the gentleman who, uh, who can't speak, who's this great ambassador, who's, who's a partial telepath. He's got the three aspects of his personality. I, God, I can't remember the name of the episode. I'm sure every comment's gonna be telling me the name of the episode. But it reminds me of that because in the end he says, you know, I'm gonna have these people learn sign language together as a way to bring them together, which was a nice little thought. But I would put my money on Opaka more, because all it's going to take is one guy getting upset once, one little moment, one second of temporary insanity, one flash of anger, one blip, and, whoops, I accidentally shot the ambassador, and that's the end of that. Opaka doesn't need to be afraid of that. If she gets shot, oh well, she'll get back up in a few minutes. She'll try again kind of a Sisyphus sort of thing. It's kind of awesome and horrible in its own way. We never touch on this again, spoiler alert. I'm curious how she did. But regardless, next week we're going to be going on to a completely separate issue, so I hope you'll join me for that. See you around, guys.